Welcome to Tools for Liberty. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor. And I'm Amanda Sparrow. This is a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. And today, we do not have Anthony with us to do our audio and video work, so we're going to have fun with this, and we're going to see if we can't sort out all of this technology. Yes, and uh, so today we're going to be talking about personality tests, idols, and holiness, and kind of looking at what is the source of holiness. Is it uh, culture or politics? Um, where does our morality and ultimately our salvation, our purpose, come from? So. Yeah, so often people, they want to, to think if we can get the right politician in office, if we can get the, the right things going on culturally, if we can get the, the right things in pop culture, then then somehow salvation and utopia will come for us. However, culture, politics, these are not the source of morality. They're not the source of existential salvation. And we have to keep that in mind. We, we really do. We have to put all that in perspective. But before we get into our serious conversation, let's start with something which is a little bit more fun. And so, that, go ahead. Yeah, we found this um, article about personality quizzes, and pretty much anybody who's been on the internet long enough has probably seen, especially maybe a BuzzFeed or a Facebook quiz, and it tells you, you know, your favorite or which Star Wars character you are, which Hogwarts house you should be sorted into. And then there's some more serious ones like the Myers-Briggs that tells you about your personality, and you end up spending actually quite a bit of money to take some of those, and they're maybe requirements for a job or an interview process or something like that. And so this article um, just kind of went into the science behind those quizzes and then also if there are any real uh, basis for them. It's done by 538 is the website, or I guess kind of the collection of this article, and it was written by Maggie Korth Baker. And we'll put a link to this article in our description as well. But... The name of this article is Most Personality Quizzes Are Junk Science, and I found one that isn't. So this is something which, uh, it's almost a bit dangerous for me to read this because I really do feel like a lot of personality quizzes are junk science. I know I've had to take the Myers-Briggs countless times. I had to take it in undergraduate, had to take it probably in grad school as well, had to take it with the district in the Church of the Nazarene that I'm on several times, actually, just all throughout life you've had to take this. And... One of my beefs with the, the personality quizzes is that they really are a peop, they give people an excuse not to make their personality better, which is sort of, I think, the backwards intention of these. I think they're, they're designed to, to help people understand themselves, but a lot of times the pathology will win without discipline. That's something I say fairly often is without discipline, the, the pathology of something, the, the bad conclusion of stuff will win. And instead of people using personality quizzes to say, hey, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm bad at. I'm going to work to be better at the things I'm bad at. Or in terms of my personal characteristics, a lot of times people say, well, here's the science. This is why I'm this way. I now am entitled to be as awful as, as I want to. But, um, yeah, so so what are your thoughts on this article, Amanda? Well, and I, I think I enjoyed how it, it talked about one the one of the kind of, I guess, pathologies of these quizzes is that they create these artificial boundaries and saying, like, okay, your personality is ABC, someone else's is XYZ. And, and if you actually look at how they work, you might actually be more similar to somebody with a different personality type than someone uh, that has the same letters as you or the same yeah. whatever. And they, like you said, they, they 
with creating these artificial boundaries, they create this excuse not to be responsible. And not only for the individual taking it, but oftentimes for the corporation or the industry that is making the person take it. They can fit you in this box, and so therefore you will work or not work with the company or the organization without any real knowledge of the person or understanding how those personality types can actually work together. Because I think, also, it's just kind of silly. You don't want to hire everybody that's exactly the same. You're not going to, and well, nobody ever really is either. So it, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you have several foundational problems with it. And so this article kind of went into, okay, there are some personality quizzes that have some good to them and some are better than others, but this is how we get to look at them and discuss them and understand um, our similarities and our differences, but how to articulate them in such a way that actually promotes personal growth versus diminishes it. Yeah, so basically, and, I, and I'm sure those of us in our, our audience, which we, we appreciate all of you who are in our audience, have probably taken a personality quiz at some point in time. They're sort of frustrating because they do offer these hypothetical situations. You know, Do you get energy from going to a party? Well, it depends on who's, who's there at the party. Do you, do you want to spend time alone? Well, it really depends on a lot more than just the hypothetical. But the big idea behind this, and even to, to quote this article here, it says, the big idea behind the, the big five is that everyone's personality has a little of all of the five trait groups, which this is pretty obvious. Everybody has a little bit of these traits. But the question is, how much role, how, how large of a role does each of these traits play for each individual person. In other words, do you score really high in introversion or really high in extroversion or are you somewhere along the middle? Because everybody is somewhere. And that's really where the problem does. And to Amanda's point earlier, you could have two people who one, they get their results back and one comes back saying, oh, I'm an extrovert. And the other one comes back and says, I'm an introvert. But they could actually be more alike than two people who are both introverted or two people who are both extroverted. And you may ask, well, how is that possible? Well, the thing is, is these are not sort of A or B choices. They're not you're either extroverted or not. You could be somebody who's slightly extroverted or somebody who's slightly introverted. And that's really where this really falls apart is you could have two people who are both just barely extroverted or barely introverted that are very actually similar. They could really go either way. And if they took the test two or three times, they could probably fall on either side of the scale. And then you can have somebody who, who scores in the 95th percentile on being introverted who is just extraordinarily introverted and is very different from either of those other people. And of course, the way the, the percentiles work in this is if you have a low score, like you're in the fifth percentile, that means you're you're just barely there. You're, you're more close to the mean, the average. But if you're somewhere in like the 95th percentile, then you're just very rare, very rare, very rare. And so that's really one of the problems with these is they, they don't really get it very deep below the skin. And, and my beef with it is, is in practice, I see it just as people using this excuse to, to behave a certain way. I know people that, even people in the, the Church of the Nazarene that put their, their big five at the end of their emails, and it, it, I hate to say this, but it, it brings an unholy amount of, of emotion, me and me, when I see this. It makes me angry because I'm like, this is just a justification for people to say, I don't have to work on my behavior. I don't have to work on, because that's how I've always seen it in practice. People saying, mm-hmm. well, I have a woo personality, therefore I can behave however I want. The science backs it up and I don't have to, to try to be a better person. Well, and I think it really is quite ridiculous. Like you were talking about the percentiles. Once when I took the the quiz, I, it was a thirty this way or thirty that way, and I I scored a perfect thirty on introvert. And it was like I could. And some people actually gave me advice for ministry. Like, well, you just need to find somebody 
that that will will complement that and do those jobs that an extrovert needs to do. And I've been lucky enough to work with a team, and even my husband as a minister ministry partner is more extroverted, and I've been grateful that they've helped balance me out. But just because I'm an extreme introvert doesn't mean I get this excuse of not to do the more extroverted works of ministry. It just means I have to work maybe a little bit harder to do the things or I need a little more time to recoup. But yeah, they're, they're not meant to be an excuse. It's just meant to give you language to explain and understand yourself and maybe other people. But there's supposed to be a starting point, not the end of it. You know, it's not like, oh, I looked at this and now I know you. It's like, no, okay, now we can maybe articulate our personalities or understand yeah. each other. But yeah, they, they can be fun. Like a BuzzFeed quiz that tells you who which Star Wars character you are. That's fun. Um, that's enjoyable, but it's not meant to be an excuse for bad behavior. I don't think you can say, well, I got Darth Vader so I can act evil now. Um, and I, I don't think you can apply that to some of those even more important or more scientific e ones either. Yeah, and <laughs> and the thing is, is and even this article points this out. We've done a really bad job of of taking something scientific and and translating into something which is really not scientific. We've we've done a bad job of of keeping this being meaningful, and and a lot of times the personality tests do that. Well, anyways, we're going to come back here in a second. We're going to have a serious conversation about holiness and what holiness means in the, the church and the Nazarene and really just what the concept means. And, and we're going to talk a lot about our culture. Uh, and, of course, this is a conversation about idolatry. A lot of times people, they give way too much power to things, whether it be sports, celebrities, you name it. People will give too much power to it. Um, that's what we're going to be looking at here in a moment. But anyways, while we're, we're gone, enjoy this, this fun soundtrack. All right. Well, we're back. And that was fun. That was that had a nice beat to it. And of course, that's made with a a Korg, a Korg. Uh, if I can get that out right. Oh my goodness. We're we're a mess without um, Anthony. Here. Yes, without Anthony here to, to help with the audio video. Um, it's made with a Korg vocal kick and a Korg vocal keys. Um, so little tiny synthesizers. Anyways, so let's talk about holiness. Um, when I look around our world today, and especially coming from the, the Nazarene background, when, when one becomes a, a minister in the Nazarene church, you go through these interviews, people ask you, what is holiness? When you go through the ministerial studies, you take classes on theology of holiness and, and whatnot. It comes out of the, the holiness movement. It's connected with Methodism and all of that. But there's always this question is, what is holiness? What is sanctification? Can you articulate this? And it's one of these things where they really grill people with, uh, but there's not a lot of people who can really articulate this without using sort of buzzwords. They, it's it's sort of lost its its intimate role in conversation. And our quick examination of our culture is well, our culture is secular. There's a lot of people that are atheist or agnostic. You, as in our as one of our viewers, may be somebody who identifies as such. Um, and if so, we appreciate you you viewing our content. But. At the same time, I don't actually think holiness has gone away. In the past, I made the statement, as people have become atheist, they have removed God, but I don't think they've actually removed religion. I don't think they have become a-religious. That's the word religious with an A on front of it, um, just like people may put A in front of theist. I don't think people are actually a-religious. People find other things to be religious about. And the same thing has happened with holiness and the, the notion of sacredness. The idea of, of the holy and the idea of the sacred, they've just been dislocated. So I want to make a few claims today, and the, the first claim I want to make is this. 
The concepts of holiness and sacredness are not dead, neither are they forgotten. They are instead wildly dislocated in society. They've been dislodged. What are your thoughts on that, Amanda? Well, I think you've you've had some examples here. Just we're all going to make kind of value like lists. We're going to decide what's important to us, and then also we're going to decide what it, kind of our source of, of joy or happiness is going to come from. And so you had listed like maybe it's sports or pop culture or whatever it is, but something that is important to us and. So a lot of times these become holy objects. And all really the word holy means is just different. Uh, sacred is something that's, you know, set apart. It's important beyond just kind of the mundane, the normal. And so that happens, like you said, beyond just religious um, ideas or practices. Everybody does this. Everyone's going to make something. It could be technology. It could be other people or other concepts. But we're going to do something to make something important to us. And then that's going to become, um, help influence our lives. So it's not just a thing. It's something that gives us in our lives purpose. Yeah, and I don't think that, that these concepts are dead by any stretch of the imagination. A couple of things that I come to mind when I think of holiness. I remember when Windows 8 came out. I don't know if anybody else remembers this, that it had the tiles um, actually, I'm going to probably be considered blaspheming right now when I say this, but the, the best phone that I ever had was a Windows 8 phone. I really miss <laughs> it. It's a shame that that era of phone technology is, is long past. However, when Windows 8 came out, I was working as a, a real estate agent at the time. That's how I paid for, for grad school. And while I was working in, in real estate, it, there came the time where realtors were buying new computers in my office. And several of them went out and bought a Windows 8 computer, and they, they got it, and they were opening it up. And a lot of these these uh, realtors, they were they were people. They did all the work in the office, so they they brought their new computer and they opened it up there in the office, and they get screaming mad because of this tile format. They did not like the aesthetics of the tile. They didn't like the charms on the side of the screen. They hated it, and it reminded me a lot of when the iPhones came out with the the more pastel looking iOS update where they had the circles and whatnot, and it used the pastel colors instead of the sort of soft squares. And there are a lot of people who were really mad about this. I, my mother's a school teacher, and she had some, some fellow teachers who were calling Verizon saying they were sending their iPhones back. They refused to pay the bill <laughs> on something which looked like this. And they, they reacted as if they had seen blasphemy when the iPhone changed its looks, when the, the windows changed its looks. People hated it. And yeah, this is something which is a bit silly, but people really do react as if they've they've something disgusting has happened. The mm-hmm. the mechanism of blasphemy has come out of their their psychological structure. It, it's it's come out and there it's there. Um, and people act like this over all kinds of things. If we learn anything from the the 2016 election, there were so many people who believed that if the right person got elected, utopia would come. Mm-hmm. Um, and when things didn't go their way, it was as if utopia had been ripped away from them. And people were firmly convinced that that existential salvation comes from the right politician. We've seen this throughout history. Um, for as long as we have human history of, of of sovereign nations, we can see where this has happened, where people have overemphasized the ability of a head of state to bring utopia. And if we look throughout history, I can't think of any time a head of state has brought in absolute utopia to the world. However, there are times when people who hey, are heads of state have brought condemnation and genocide. But politicians do not bring salvation. Policies do not bring salvation. The right themes in pop culture do not bring salvation. Salvation belongs to God, and and that is the place of that. And people have placed salvation in other places, and it's just a, a really bad thing. You even see this with characters like Miley Cyrus, 
when she went from being Hannah Montana and and the same with Justin Bieber. As those two people, they kind of went into adulthood and they they changed their lifestyle. People got really upset because they were no longer behaving as the the innocent people they were believed to be. But these these are people who are entertainers. There's that is not a source of of sacred. Um, the sacred and the entertainment world are not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> well, um, do you have any other thoughts on that, Amanda? Just that that people place the the role of the sacred on on people instead of on God. Well, and I think to your one point of of like powers and political figures bring you know more destruction. They've not actually brought about. Salvation is when we look, whatever the category is, whether it's politics or pop culture or whatever, is there still needs to be a, an amount of, of uh, critical thinking where we say this is this is bad, this is destructive. But yeah, we don't find in them like the source of how we yeah. judge what is what is good and what is bad. We can that source needs to come from a different place, and yes. then we apply it upon the politicians and the pop culture figures or the whatever it is. Um, so I think, yeah, we get it kind of backwards sometimes. We're like, okay, these people or things are the source of our, our criterias. And then we get distraught when those criterias fall apart because even those people we've based that on are falling apart. You know, they're not the heroes or the idols that we thought they should be. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point because it's not that they should be completely separate in the fact that we we don't care about morality at all, but we 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 put it in its right perspective. Like you said, we've got it backwards. It is important for politicians to be moral and for pop culture to be moral, mm-hmm. but they are not the source of morality. They are something which strives for morality. They, they are a secondary thing to that. They're a medium for morality to, to manifest. Sometimes things are more moral. Sometimes they're less moral. But the whole point is, is they're not the source of morality themselves. Mm-hmm. All right. So the next claim I, I want to, to bring up is a bit more connected with the, the holiness movement and the concept of holiness itself. So obviously, we are ministers in the Church of the Nazarene, which, again, is connected with Methodism and the whole holiness movement, which is the idea that people can actually achieve sanctification, that there's something real when we were called to Christian perfection. There's something significant about that. It's not just a a fun literary device in the New Testament. Um, But back in the day, especially in the Church of the Nazarene, there used to be this, this really rigorous amount of holiness rules that people had to live by. You could only dress a certain way. You could only do certain things in life. They, they had rules, things like you couldn't play cards, you couldn't go to the movies. This sort of things were, were the holiness rules. Well, they sound a lot like fundamentalism, but I have a, a claim I want to make today, and this is the second claim. So if you're following along, this is claim number two. Perhaps the, whole, the old school holiness rules were not so wrong after all. And this is something that I've come along to myself. So that's my basic claim is perhaps these old school rules were not so wrong after all. And let me let me articulate what I mean by that, and then I'll see what Amanda's thoughts are. So there was a time in the holiness movement where people were taught you had to dress a certain way, you had to behave a certain way. And all of these rules seem really arbitrary. That Even in my own life, I've poked a lot of fun at these. You know, there was a, a time and place where they said the sanctuary is a place people are reverent. You can't eat or drink in the sanctuary, no hats in the sanctuary, certainly no playing of, of Nerf guns in the sanctuary, mm-hmm. not that I would ever permit such things. Um, but, and only certain music is played there. Of course, all of these things were contingent upon specific trends from a specific time and place. These are, obviously, people didn't wear suits and ties in the time of, of Jesus. People didn't wear the style of dresses that we've had in the last hundred 
um, in 50 years, uh, people did not have Southern Gospel in the, the time when the New Testament what? events were unfolding. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> Shocking. But there was this, or for that matter, they didn't even have the, the, the musical architecture that we have in a lot of our mm-hmm. historical hymns. Um, the way that we have the, the music structure of today, I mean, that's, these are inventions of, of time after that. But people still understood you have these rules, this is what goes on in the sanctuary, and it seems really arbitrary. I mean, in fact, from the material side of things, it is entirely arbitrary. But I don't think it was, it was so wrong. Because on a deeper level, these rules actually communicated something. They communicated that the holiness of God was real and that the sacredness of God is real and how you interact with the world is shaped by the fact that there are certain things holy and, and sacred in life. The fact that there is a physical place where you, you behave differently, that, was, that communicates to you that holiness is real. You have to change how you behave. But the, there's always a danger when you, you let the material side of it outweigh the, the deeper side of it. But anyways, what are your thoughts on this, Amanda? Well, and I think this is one, a great opportunity for us to simply ask the question, why? So why were there rules about dress? Why were there rules about things like don't play with cards? Um, I, I have a family member whose grandparents um, wouldn't even let them play Uno because it was too much like a card game. Um, you know, why were these rules in place? Furthermore, we can look even beyond kind of the, the holiness movement in, in, in the United States during like the 1800s, and we can say, why were there holiness rules in ancient Israel? What was their purpose? And again, let's not get kind of the cart before the horse or anything, is what it, were these things, these rules, the source of holiness? Or were these things the consequence of another source of holiness? Was it for us? You know, God is the source of holiness, or he is. It's not just for us. But, and that holiness calls a people. Remember, all holy means is different. That a different a God that's acting very differently than the rest of the the ideologies of gods was acting differently, and this God was calling a people to act differently, and so we act differently because there's a purpose behind them, um, and so I think as we you know we continue this conversation, we can definitely look and see where the church has epically failed, where they have made these things idols, they have made them a ways to manipulate God to manipulate people instead of them to be kind of uh, the outcome of this holy God. And so um, I was sharing with Dylan earlier a story of I went to a campground, and, and camp meetings really big amongst the Church of the Nazarene, some other American holiness movements. And this campground had this billboard on it, maybe not the size of a billboard, but it had a big poster on it that told you what it meant to act on this campground. And some of them were sensible things like no weapons and you know, um, there was, I think, a curfew, some quiet hours, things that are just like general polite, how to act in this environment. And then some of them were kind of weird, like women were turned away if they showed up wearing pants. Men were turned away if they showed up wearing shorts. And it's like, okay, we've missed it. We made these things more important than the person coming and hearing the music or the sermon or encountering a God at this campground because we've decided the things became more important. So we have to keep these things not really in tension with one another, but in their right order and understanding where this ultimately holiness comes from. But nor should we just say, well, you know, my grandparents missed it or whoever the people, the the pastors of a hundred years ago missed it. So we're just going to throw it all away and say that there doesn't need to be holiness is a bygone um, I, idea, and so we're just going to throw it all out. And so neither of those options, are, I think, are quite appropriate for for what actual is happening in in, in holiness. 
Yeah, and I think, to your point, there, when we dig away the holiness rules, because all we see is that they're arbitrary, and they, they can turn into fundamentalism really quick, which is very antithetical to a lot of the doctrines within the Church of the Nazarene, but they, they can turn into fundamentalism if they're less left undisciplined. Without the right teachings, without people knowing the why, it'll turn into fundamentalism very quickly. But um, I think we have lost something because there's been a fallout. We threw out the holiness rules without asking why. Um, and when I say without asking why, it hasn't filtered down to the to the pop culture of the local churches. Sure, I'm sure there's a lot of theologians, a lot of people who are high up who have who have fought this stuff out. But at the local level, it's sort of like they have quietly disappeared is really how it's functioned um, and how it's functioned in our society as well. If we look at a the Western society as a whole, the the Christian, the Judeo-Christian value system has sort of slowly slipped away in, in darkness more than it's been this blatant come out and saying we're ripping this away. And the holiness rules are one of these things which has sort of quietly disappeared. And I think we have had a a huge loss in this because it's very difficult for us to communicate to people that God is the source of holiness when people have been making idols out of other things and there are no things in the world to remind them of God's holiness. Again, they, these are all mediums for showing holiness. The holiness rules, they are not holiness itself. They are a medium for conveying holiness. The, the sanctuary being a place treated separately. I know a lot of people have multifunctional sanctuaries that are gyms and, and whatnot. Even I myself, I must confess, Jolton Sanctuary is not um, the Grand Cathedral or the, the National Cathedral. Um, but it, it is functional. And it's, it's beautiful in its own right. But we do not treat the sanctuaries the same way that we used to. And it is hard. And my, I'm guilty of this too. But it's hard for us to communicate to people that holiness is real when we no longer have the illustrations in life to do that. Because a lot of people are, and, I, and it, it kills me that, that I say this, people are not as logical as they are emotional or as they are driven by the aesthetics of the world. And when there's not something there that are good tools for communicating this, it can be hard for people to really grasp that. So I want to have a, a few questions that really have been presented in regards to this topic. And... I'm going to ask them, and I'll let Amanda share her thoughts, and then I'll respond to it. So the first question I have for us today is, can we communicate holiness and sacredness by setting certain things aside to be treated differently? Well, and I think you've, you've kind of almost already answered this question when you've talked about we have, we have these means, uh, these mediums that show us what holiness is. Um, the church I work at, Trinity Church of the Nazarene in Nashville, has a multipurpose room. It's a big uh, gym that we've repurposed uh, after the fire sanctuary burned. And so we repurposed the gym to be our sanctuary, to be our dining hall, to be fill in blank here. But we've also been very intentional of like, okay, the space is going to have a different purpose depending on the service. So it's going to look differently when we have a Sunday morning service than when we have uh, a fellowship meal or a funeral or a wedding. Because there's something we're pointing towards with the decorations, with the architecture, with the lighting, the sound. All these things, even though they're, in a sense, arbitrary, they're just mediums, when we put them all together for a purpose, they point people towards something. And so in an instance, a chair can be set apart for someone to sit and to hear the word versus just being a normal chair. And maybe that's an oversimplification, but 
these things take on important meaning. They they become transformed into something sacred, something holy, something different, uh, because there's a purpose for them to be that. And also to a point we've made earlier, people are going to set things apart, regardless of, of religion or ideologies. And so when Christianity then comes in, has to say, this is what's going to be important for us. And when people see these things, or they hear these things, or or they experience these things, they're going to know that this is something different. There's this purpose behind it that because it's in relationship with God, it's not going to be just something. It's something important. Yeah, and my thoughts on this are basically this. Yes, we can communicate holiness if we are are setting things aside. But the thing is, we just have to make sure that the the material side of this doesn't take front and center stage. Mm-hmm. We just have to be balanced in how we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Amanda has said, I pretty much already asked this next question, and we both kind of answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, and you can just give a, a Woodburn answer if, okay. if that's all, all that is necessary because we've talked about this. So the next logical question is, if we've asked, can you communicate holiness and sacredness by setting certain things apart, aside, can you communicate holiness and sacredness without setting certain things aside seems like the next question. In other words, can you do it without setting things aside? But it's pretty clear that people are going to set things aside anyways. So I think the proper question in this sequence is, should the church be proactive in setting things aside so that people do not set aside idols to be treated as holy? Should the church just be proactive in this? Yes. <laughs> Your one-word answer is The one-word yes. answer is And I would say yes, too. Um, if the church isn't proactive in setting things aside, um, then Justin Bieber and Hannah Montana are going to be set aside. <laughs> and when they turn into adults and they're not behaving correctly, um, or when the iPhone gets a new update, oh, no. or it loses a headphone jack, which people are... That, that's the thing that, that if I justify any, any sort of um, secular blasphemy, that's probably one. Um, but no, seriously... People are going to find things to idolize. Mm-hmm. And and I think we're so quick to say, oh, it's not a big deal to throw out idols. The Christian, the Jewish concept of idolatry, that being in the, the Ten Commandments, it seems like that's such a, a moog point, especially if you're not a practicing Christian. But the problem is with idolatry, there's a very practical problem with that is because mm-hmm. you start to look for salvation in the wrong places. You start to look for salvation in, in politicians, in pop culture, in whatever music you listen to, and you are no longer looking for salvation from a, from the true source of salvation. So there's a big problem with idolatry. So the church should be proactive in this. Right, and I think that's, that's something maybe we, we need to just clarify again is idolatry is not this concept of you have a little wooden figure in the corner of your house, right? Because we, we think, okay, well, we're modern people. We don't believe in that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's a mute point, like you said, but it, that's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is trying to n- manipulate God or it is trying to find salvation, something outside of the true source of salvation. And we do that, whether or not, re- regardless of your religious beliefs, we all find something that will give us purpose and hope. And so where are we going to be? Where is that source coming from? All right. And the last question I'm going to ask for us today is, is these holiness rules, they sound like fundamentalism. And it kills me to say, but there have been even fundamentalists who have been infected into the Church of the Nazarene. Um, we find this. 
Uh, without discipline, the pathology will win, and people will, will turn holiness rules to fundamentalism. So my question for you, Amanda, is this. Holiness rules, they sound like fundamentalism, but do they have to be fundamentalism? No, and again, like we've talked about before, it's where is the source? Where is your starting point? If you start with the rules, then they're going to be fundamentalism. They're going to be this um, this controlling thing that has really no basis in reality. Um, it's going to be where you're going to turn the person away because they're tired so they can't come to church, which still is the most dumbfounding thing I have ever heard in my life because it makes no sense. But that's what's going to happen versus if God is the source of holiness, it's going to filter through where maybe we do dress a certain way. Maybe we do act a certain way. Maybe we do certain things and don't do certain other things. But that list can't control us. It's God that through relationship with God that we, we come to those places. And so every generation may have to refigure what does it mean to be the people of God? And it's going to look differently because of time and culture and all these different factors. But it doesn't mean we keep throwing out everything every, you know, every new generation or every new day because, you know, we just don't like the rules. But, yeah, it, it's a, it's a, but at the same time, we can't talk about it like it's a tightrope. It's not something where we're on the edge of either being holiness or fundamentalism. And But if everything's in its right order, if God is the source of life, then we're not going to turn to fundamentalism. We're not going to turn to this controlling rule book to dictate our lives. Um, so I, I don't I don't think holiness intrinsically always falls to fundamentalism. It only does that if we've decided we are the source of salvation, the rules are a source of salvation versus God. All right. Um, a few more things before we got to wrap up, because we, we do have to wrap up for a few <laughs> reasons, actually, one of which is everything that's running the show right now is working on battery power, and I have no idea how to fix that. So <laughs> okay. we've got to wrap this up. Literally. Um, but you brought up a point earlier that holiness was never meant to be something which was a, a burden. It was never meant to be oppressive. And I'm not going to steal your thought because that was a, a thought that you brought up that is so important in this conversation. Um, why don't you articulate that for a second? Okay. Well, um, well we were talking about earlier about uh, holiness. And often because we do talk about it as these arbitrary rules, it's a burden. It weighs us down because you know, we can't play Uno and, and we can't go to the movies and we have to wear certain clothes and it's just, it's tiresome, right? But this is not the point of holiness. This, that, that's really the consequences of idolatry. The purpose of holiness is to free a people and to say, look, the rest of the world is weighed down. You're called to something better, something free or something, you know, just holy, different, something exciting and joyous that we no longer have to be weighed down by things like money we don't have to be afraid to give away um, everything we have because we know the source of our life is God. Our source of life isn't in those things. It's not in politicians. It's not in pop culture. We're actually freed as a holy people. It, it's meant to be wonderful and joyous. And it's only when we turn it into idolatry, it's only when we turn it into something controlling that it becomes a burden. Yeah. And I want to read something. This is out of a book, uh, Perfect Love, John Allen Wood, 1828. It's a pretty interesting read. And this is from, again, something that was a, another force back when the, the holiness movement was going on in the 1800s. There's a, a chapter in this book called Making a Hobby of Holiness. It's very interesting. And there's a really important point that's made by, by Wood here in this book. And it reads, The taunting accusations serve to quiet the convictions and groanings of many 
who see and feel their need of a clean heart. It is to be feared that the cry of hobbyism frightens multitudes away from the pursuit of holiness. Now, basically what that statement saying is, back in the day, they used to make fun of the holiness people by saying, you're making a hobby of holiness. They would try to delegitimize using a rhetorical tool, uh, holiness. And surprise, surprise, people are still trying to discredit people using rhetorical tools instead of arguments. Um, surprise, surprise, that, that's an ancient, an ancient one there. But anyways, the, the whole thing was, just to sort of put this in context, he was saying the people who could not actually behave in a reasonably holy way, the people who could not embrace the cleansing of the heart were the people who tried to discredit holiness. And they, they don't, they try to get people to turn away from it, so they try to, to, to paint it badly um, with words, which is sophistry. You're, you're trying to sell something that's not true. Um, and that's really one of the things that's, that's happened with this issue is, is we've tainted it with, with the wrong things. It's got dislocated in, and it's just left a big amount of mess. Um, so we're going to wrap this up there. Um, so my challenge for you, be someone who, who tries to, to, to look to God and to ask for that holiness in your life. Be one who strives for sanctification. Let holiness come in and be real in your life. Let it be something that you actually walk with and interact in the world. And in closing, uh, Anthony is not here, so we don't have a cheap platitude for you. <laughs> I would like to, to thank you for viewing. Uh, we thank you so much for coming to, to tune in to enjoy life here with myself and Pastor Amanda. We, we have a lot of fun doing this. I hope you found something meaningful out of this program. Please share our content. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And on that, I hope you have a blessed day.